0: this show is produced by the hartman media company for more information and links to all our great podcasts visit hartmanmedia.com
1: welcome to the solomon success show where we explore the timeless wisdom of king solomon and the bible as it relates to business and investing. false prophets and get rich quick schemes are everywhere let's not be distracted by these instead Let's go to the source, the eternal principles that create a life of peace, power, and prosperity. Here's our host, Jason Hartman.
0: It's my pleasure to welcome Patrick M. Wood to the show. He is the editor of the August Forecast and the August Review. He's also author of Technocracy Rising, the Trojan Horse of Global Transformation. Patrick, welcome. How are you?
2: I'm doing great, Jason. Thanks for having me on.
0: It's good to have you on the show, and I remember coming across your book and thinking, what an interesting topic. What is technocracy?
2: What does that mean? Well, let me give you a definition from 1938. This, this is a definition of technocracy that came out of the magazine called The Technocrat. This okay. was a historic event back in the 1930s and 40s. What, this is what they said. Technocracy is the science of social engineering, the scientific operation of the entire social mechanism to produce and distribute goods and services to the entire population. That's a direct quote.
0: Hmm. It's interesting. 1938, you said? That's right. Wow. that is mind-boggling <laughs> that, uh, that people were even thinking and talking like that. If only they could see the world today, right?
2: <laughs> exactly. I think they had that in mind, but let me give you a little backdrop on that. 1932, 1933 time frame, The Great Depression was just raging at that time. Everybody thought capitalism was dead. They were angry with politicians because they were the blame for it, they said. And a group of of prominent scientists and engineers, many of them at Columbia University in New York City, started this social movement or this economic movement called technocracy. And they were at Columbia for some time, but they believed that the scientists and the engineers were the only ones at the time that could redefine an economic system that could replace capitalism and free enterprise. And that's where this grew out of. It was a replacement economic system for capitalism and free enterprise. And they believed that they could use their quote unquote engineering skills to apply that to the social aspect of our country, economic aspect. And so that's where they came up with this whole idea of the scientific operation of the entire social mechanism to produce and distribute goods and services to the entire population. A
0: little crazy,
2: but that's it.
0: It is crazy. So technocracy was really a political movement then, uh, like socialism, communism, libertarianism, conservatism, liberalism. I mean, it's on par with those. I mean, I don't get how it I mean, I don't know, that's a, it's just a different thing. Maybe you can help us understand that a little bit more by defining what a technocrat is. What does that person do, a technocrat? You know, that's different than a bureaucrat?
2: Technocrat is an expert, number one, some kind of a, an engineering or scientific expert who would intend to use his skill for the sake of social engineering. The thing that set technocracy apart from all of the other isms, communism, socialism, fascism, and so on, was that it was the only system back then that intended to do away with capitalism altogether. They proposed doing away with currency. They proposed doing away with politicians. They said, what do we need politicians for? The scientists and engineers can just run everything and just that will be it. You know, There's no need to discuss this with anybody else. And so if you were to ask a technocrat back in those days, are you a communist? You'd likely get into a fist fight. I mean they just know we're not communists. we have nothing to do with communism well the fact of the matter is you look at it and there's a lot of similarities and they're both totalitarian for instance they're both completely autocratic for instance but socialism and communism did not redefine the economic system like these people did these people went far beyond just mere socialism and communism with a system of control that would cause the system to control people automatically This was crazy scientific stuff for that day. But I'll point out that Aldous Huxley, the author of Brave New World in 1932, by the way, that was a year when Columbia University was having their heyday with technocracy. And he was looking straight into the face of technocracy when he wrote Brave New World. This is where he got his idea. So Aldous Huxley looked at technocracy and what he saw was scientific. Dictatorship. Wow. And that's what we have. That's what we're going to say.
0: How does this differ from the Orwellian vision? I guess 1984, Orwell's book was published in uh, 1949, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, so, right. where does Orwell come into this, or is technocracy Orwellian, or uh, it's Huxleyan, I guess? <laughs> I've never heard that expression, but I just made it up, maybe. Yeah.
2: That's a good one. Orwell was also looking at technocracy when he was inspired to write his book. Now, they're different books. You read them both, and you say, well, they take off on a different tangent, but they have a lot in common, too, in the sense that they're both about a scientific dictatorship, they're both about totalitarianism, and they're both about, we will make you love the system that enslaves you.
0: (laughs) Communism is so good that you have to force people to do it. <laughs> yes. Yeah. The population just doesn't get it. <laughs> it's They don't get how good it is. We have to force them at gunpoint.
1: <laughs> exactly. Yeah,
0: it's crazy. It really is. Okay, so what are we looking at today? That's a little bit of a backdrop for us. But what's going on in today's world? Do you think technocracy is coming back? Well, it
2: has come back. It's not just will it come back. It's already here. And we see it under the auspices of sustainable development. Agenda 21, the 2030 agenda, there was just a big hoopla in New York City where the Pope came to talk to the United Nations about climate change and stuff like that. The United Nations has picked up the gauntlet, if you will, and is spreading the concept of sustainable development all around the world. And here's the thing to help people understand this. This is not about political systems. This is about economic systems. Sustainable development, as a phrase, is an economic term. It's not a political term. Obviously, there's got to be political implications.
0: Most people would think it's an environmental term, and it sounds so innocent on its face. And just before you go on and, and respond to that, I want to say, Agenda 21, UN Agenda 21, is something we've done shows on before you know, it's an interesting thing. Feel free to go into that if you wish. But I don't know what Agenda 2030 is. So maybe you can comment on all that.
2: Well, this is good. Well, Agenda 21 was created, as you know, back in 1992 as a result of the Earth Summit. And in the year 2000, the United Nations got together and created what they call the Millennium Development Goals. That was kind of where they specifically wanted to go in the next 15 years. Well, the Millennium Development Goals expire on the last day of this year, 2015. And so the 2030 Agenda was an effort to renew the dedication to implementing sustainable development. They extended it another 30 years. They call it the 2030 Agenda. It's basically the same stuff warmed over uh, There's a few extra things in there too. But it's basically just an extension of the same thing with a greater sense of urgency to implement it around the world. The last meeting that they had in, in New York City on September 25 called on all the leaders of the world to sign on to this document and pledge to make radical transformations in their own countries in order to implement sustainable Development.
0: So, what did Comrade Obama do?
2: Well, he's all on board with us totally. He's Mr. Climate Change, you know. But he's
0: not going to live with it or practice any of this stuff. It's not for him, it's just for everybody else.
2: <laughs> well, that's a good point, too. I have to say, the Al Gore's of the world are still jet-setting around in their private jets and so on, and living in their giant, giant mansion.
0: All of these requirements are just for us little people, you know. Some animals are more equal than others, yeah, animal it farm. know. It does
2: appear that way. It right. does appear that way. But we find the United Nations themselves making incredible statements, like Christiana Figueres earlier this year, she's the head of climate change at the U.N., very important position. She was in a press conference earlier this year, and she said, this is a direct quote, amazing. She said, this is the first time in the history of mankind that we are setting ourselves the task of intentionally, within a defined period of time, to change the economic development model that has been reigning for at least 150 years since the Industrial Revolution. This is what they're trying to do. They're trying to displace capitalism and free enterprise And substitute or overrule it or just, you know, whatever, override it with this system of sustainable development. They also call it green economy, by the way. But what it is really is just warmed over technocracy from the nineteen thirties. And that was the purpose of my book, Technocracy Rising, to point this out and to document it.
0: But I mean, doesn't shouldn't we want a good environment? Aren't you know, sustainable development? I mean, isn't that a good thing? That's what people would say. It's what the label sounds like. It sounds good. It sounds good to be able to say that we all practice that. I mean it's probably good for our ego, make us all feel like a good person to say we're into sustainability.
2: Well, that's what they hope you're going to think. They promise to eradicate poverty. They promise to provide good jobs with dignity for all. They promise to end disease. And the promises go on and on, like this is utopia. But in the fine print, where they say that we need to move to a system of sustainable production and consumption they don't specify on the surface of it what is sustainable consumption and production. And these people, these technocrats, intend to take over the control mechanisms of production and consumption in order to determine two things. Number one, what can be made, what's allowed to be made. They will make those decisions, not customers. Secondly, how much would you be able to consume they will make the decisions on what you should consume as a citizen on planet Earth. If you have too much grass in your yard, why, you may have to uh, take out half your grass because you're not allowed to have that much water to take care of the whole yard. Maybe you need to sell your gas-guzzling SUV and buy a bicycle and or a Prius. Maybe you need to give up some of your international air flight traffic where you're using up jet fuel Jetting all over the world, et cetera, to reduce your carbon footprint. When somebody else starts making the decisions for you and I, this is where the rub comes in. This is the heartbeat of free enterprise that has brought America to be the greatest economic powerhouse in the history of the world. It's based on consumer choice. It's based on what the demand is in order for supply to meet it. The free market works difficulties out, but these people want to throw the free market out and merely take over directly the means of production and consumption. This is a big rub, especially in America.
0: This ideology, these people have been promising this stuff for decades and decades and decades really, I guess you could say centuries, you could even bring it back to John Malthus and Malthusianism and that whole ideology, that resources are scarce, that we need to control the population, we need to reduce the population. Now, I don't know who gets to make that decision. Maybe these people are looking for another Hitler, Stalin, Mao, I'm not sure what would be good for their movement, but it seems to be that's where you go with this. You know, people are the scourge of the earth, People don't provide any contribution. They don't figure out ways to eliminate pollution, reduce pollution. They simply cause pollution and destruction. They're not a resource. They're a cost, a net cost to the earth. I guess we don't have a right to be here, maybe. That's what they tell us.
2: That's basically the attitude that the environmental movement, as it's working out through the United Nations, has. And they've already declared very pointedly that given the consumption level that we currently have in america and other industrialized nations in the world that the resources of the world will only be able to provide for approximately maybe 800 to 900 million people and that's all and they don't really specify right there well what's going to happen to the other 6 billion people on planet earth or 7 billion whatever it is but the idea is They've made an a priori decision on how much resources the earth should cough up in any given period of time. And then they turn around and say, now, if that's our limit on uh, resources, then all of you selfish little humans need to cut back your consumption to a level that would be approximately back somewhere around 1850." and then maybe the resources of the world can be extended and maybe everybody can get along but short of like reducing our living standard back to the mid-1800s they say that we're all going to die the seas are going to rise we're all going to die and we're all going to run out of food and you know there you go and that's basically back to malta's argument that people are going to overrun and overpopulate the world
0: they've been predicting this stuff forever and they've been promising to solve it forever but their track record is terrible. I mean, there are still massive amounts of poverty in the world. Government isn't solving the problem. Central banks certainly aren't solving the problem. They're making it worse. The only thing that really seems to be contributing to the problem is actually capitalism. Even would even argue that charities aren't solving the problem, that the capitalists are solving the problem.
2: This has been the case in, in America, and it's It's demonstrable, I believe, I I think it's perfectly demonstrable, that America has been the singular nation in the world that has proven the concept and the value of free enterprise and capitalism. That's not to say that capitalism doesn't have some problems. It's not perfect.
0: You know, let let me address that, by the way. You know, just so people understand what to call it, okay? Because some people aren't familiar with this term, and, and the term is externalities, okay? Capitalism or communism, for that matter, everything has externalities. And one of the claims, and I think it's reasonable, I mean, this is a a point of debate, and I think it's a fair point, is that if Dow Chemical, or whomever, whatever, if they go and manufacture all this stuff, they pay their share of taxes, hopefully, and they hopefully uh, keep their manufacturing processes relatively clean, there will still be externalities. They will still create some amount of pollution. They'll still create various demands on the environment. But they also make a contribution, right? They create chemicals that make a better life. I mean, I don't know why I use Dow Chemical. I had a girlfriend years ago that worked for them. I certainly wouldn't want to pick like Monsanto. (laughs) and. But but even even Monsanto, as evil as everybody likes to say Monsanto is, they've been a big part of solving the fear of famine. I mean, you know, in the 70s, there were all of these movies and all of this talk and all of this Malthusianism about famine. And I'm not saying it's good, but, uh, you know, genetic engineering with crops and so forth. Certainly that has its area of contribution. I mean, I'm suspicious of it, personally. I don't want to buy this stuff, but you can argue both ways for it, right? And we have yet to know how this all is going to work out. We, you know, it may be another 20, 30 years before we really know, but externalities are an issue. Uh, is that a
2: fair point? I think it is. And I think this is. I think this has been the case. You know, it's like the Bible says, for instance, that the love of money is the root of all evil. And I like to point out, it's not money that's the root of all evil. It doesn't say that. Money is just money. It's inert. It's just a piece of paper. But the love of money creates all kinds of problems. Now, in the same sense, you can take all of this doing business sort of stuff. You can take uh, whether it's doing business or whether it's capitalism or whatever it is, technology. The use of these things is what makes a difference. If a corporation decides to conquer the world and create a monopoly and start gouging the daylights out of customers because they've driven all the competition out of business. That's a very poor use of the capitalistic mechanism, if not illegal and immoral. It's a bad use. Same thing with technology. If technology is used to help you and me do things better, more easily, it serves us, in other words, that's one thing. But if technology is used to force you to serve another master, that's not a good use of technology. That's what we're talking about here, is that there's evil people in the world that are intending to use these things to clobber the little people like you and I, and they're doing it without a permission or consent. Right. Okay, so Patrick, let's
0: go into some of your, like, I'm looking at the table of contents of your book, Technocracy Rising, right? right? You talk about how they're transforming economics, transforming government, transforming religion, transforming law, transforming energy. Tell us about those items. What are they doing specifically here, and what are the threats?
2: Wow, it would be hard to to summarize that. Just just give us a couple
0: of examples. You know, those are all interesting points.
2: That's right. Some of the programs that are being used against us. I put Agenda 21 and the 2030 Agenda kind of at the top because that's the trickle-down. Sustainable development in general. Smart grid, the implementation of smart meters. The whole climate change area. You've got common core education standards, which is a big part of the education portion. You've got the whole cap and trade movement, which is trying to move us towards some type of a carbon trading system based on energy. You've got the concept of smart growth that's trickled down into many cities and counties throughout America. And a whole plethora of land use policies that basically are stripping away property rights from owners of property, whether it's commercial or private property, around the nation. All of these things together, and there's more stuff, but all of these things together can be viewed as a whole through the lens of technocracy. They all relate. It's all part of the same organic system that's being used to transform the economic fabric of the world, and that's a sea change event for us in America for sure.
0: Yeah. Okay, so that's when you talk about transforming law, you look at all these laws, that's certainly true. Energy, you've got the smart grid, which is going to limit people's consumption of utility resources. How are they transforming religion? One of the interesting things that goes on with this movement is that they're basically making environmentalism a religion. It's got all the sort of elements of like this religious fervor, this this self righteousness, this you do this, but I don't have to do this. The hypocrisy. When you, you 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 know, there's certainly some religious hypocrisy out there. So that's one way that I'd say they're doing it.
2: You're absolutely right. This, this is a religious proposition, and when you boil it down to its very lowest common denominator, it is a religious proposition that we might do a hold whole their program just on that. But here's what the World Council of Churches said. Uh, this is their press release. After the so-called Interfaith Summit on Climate Change in 2014, they said this. This is a quote. There's never been such a large amount of religious environmental activity in one location in the history of the world. This week will mark a watershed in the history of religion. It will be the time that people remember as the time when the world's faiths declared themselves irrevocably as green faiths, close quote. That's just incredible. And the World Council of Churches, if people don't know, they represent, they're a big umbrella organization that represent all of the major denominations in the world, especially the Christian denominations. But now, as you see, they're attending things like the Interfaith Summit on Climate Change, which includes other religions too. It includes the Buddhists, the Hindus, the Sikhs, it includes Islam. So the interfaith movement got together and They all went green together. (laughs) They all say kumbaya and they went green and they're all following after sustainable development now.
0: Interesting. Okay, so um, I think you've pretty much covered it. uh, Transforming humanity. Tell us what you mean there.
2: Well, you know, this is the whole topic of transhumanism. And transhumanism is very closely related to technocracy in that they're both based on a philosophy of scientism. And we'll go into that in detail, but scientism is, is an idea that man can use science and technology to improve his lot in life. And so they're, they're also applying science to the human condition now. And there's a giant call in some corners of the scientific world for man to become immortal Within another 20 to 30 years, this is an interesting thought because man has never been immortal yet, at least in physical life. Yet scientists are prominent scientists, too, are calling for an end to death, an increase in knowledge and the ability almost to be omniscient, if you will. And, you know, this is a prepper. This is prepping humans to be part of this new global society that, that they envision.
0: So is that bad? I mean, what's wrong with living longer? I, I have another show on that, by the way, the longevity and biohacking show. <laughs> so, uh, uh, sure. go, 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 what's, what's wrong with that? Now, now, here's the interesting point about it, though, before you answer what's wrong with living longer, right? The interesting thing is that idea seems to be very much in conflict with this movement's Malthusian idea. You want people to die if they're the That's scourge the right. of the earth, right? Um, you don't want them living longer. Wouldn't uh, that be terrible for the environment, they would say? I find that to be an interesting point. But is there anything wrong with living longer? I mean, what's the what's the uh, problem there?
2: I want to live longer. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to predict my life's going to be cut short. But I don't know what my allotted years ought to be, uh, 80, 90, 100 years. I would like to live longer, period. But here's the difference between just living longer and achieving immortality. Immortality means you will never die. It means you will live forever. And this is what these scientists and engineers are trying to do. And, I, you know, to that I say basically good luck. Every man that was ever born and woman on the face of this planet, except for the ones that are alive right now, they're all dead, 100% of them. And, you know, this is something that's endemic to the condition of man. And I have to say, even as one who believes in the Bible himself, that's me, the Bible's pretty clear in that it says it's, one, it's appointed once for a man to die, and then comes judgment. So death has been something that's entered this world as a permanent thing. These people think that they're going to circumvent all those rules and laws or whatever, and they're going to achieve immortality and become gods. And I must say that they use that very language. They will become like gods. And so, okay, you know, you say to it, well, good luck, guys. I hope that works out for you. Uh, it's gonna, it's gonna be interesting. That's about all you can say. I hope it works out for you guys. Don't be disappointed when you end up on your deathbed. I think one of the
0: huge problems with immortality, if it were even possible, that uh, few people think about, is it causes you not to value your life and time. I mean people don't or at least I'll speak for myself. I don't think I give enough value to time now. You know, every day passes. If we were immortal or even if we lived a lot longer, we would value it even less and we would think, well, gosh, you know, I'll just wait and do it later. You know, I'll I'll put off my life. That's the big problem with this kind of thinking, I think.
2: Yeah. So it's that's that whole aspect of transforming humanity and any of the same scientists and engineers that are working on on this whole business of immortality are also the same people that are working on social engineering and stuff to engineer society to be efficient and enlightened and all those kinds of things. Yeah, right,
0: right. Well, you know, nothing wrong with those in concept. The problem is the way they approach it and what That's it right. always ends up being this control movement. You know, it's just always turns into that for some terrible reason. But okay, good. Yes. Give out your website. Tell people where they can find out more about you.
2: Website technocracy.news Not only give you a link from my book to purchase Technocracy Rising, but also lots of current articles sifted from around the world that focus on technocracy and all the various things we're talking about, Agenda 21 and 2030 Agenda and so on, sustainable development. And uh, It's also available, however, on Amazon.com. There's a Kindle version as well for people who like electronic readers. And they can get it in either place. It's okay with me. Just get it. Can you close
0: with uh, any action thoughts, anything people can do if they're concerned about this, as as are you? What would you say to the listeners? What can they do about it, if anything?
2: I certainly can. People need to to turn their focus away from the national scene onto their local communities. Agenda 21 and all the stuff we're talking about has trickled down to every community in America. And Americans who are concerned about this need to clean up their own house right where they live and get into their city councils, get into their zoning committees, get into their school boards, and literally kick some keister and drive this ideology out of your local community. You must start at home. And that's my best advice. That's something you can do today if you wanted to.
0: Good stuff. Start locally. Good point. Patrick Wood, thank you so much for joining us.
2: My pleasure. Thank you, sir.
1: This show is produced by the Hartman Media Company, all rights reserved. For distribution or publication rights and media interviews, please visit www.hartmanmedia.com or email media at hartmanmedia.com. Nothing on this show should be considered specific personal or professional advice. Please consult an appropriate tax, legal, real estate, or business professional for individualized advice. Opinions of guests are their own, and the host is acting on behalf of Platinum Properties Investor Network, Inc. exclusively.